Hello, and welcome back to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and welcome to the third season of this show. I am really excited to be back. I'm excited for the start of a new academic year. My classes are going awesomely so far, and I'm really excited for this month's conversation. Before we get to that, though, a little update about the network. We just began publishing a six podcast. I mean, literally just last week we started publishing it. And this one's a Neil Gaiman book club. And we're starting with his Sandman comics, which are just packed full of allusions to classical and medieval literature and history. We're spending a lot of time unpacking those, as well as talking about the history of comics. We're also thinking about the 1980s and the 1990s in light of the changes to our own world, the often dramatic changes of the digital revolution and the aftermath of 9-11. We're trying to read the Sandman as a almost as a historical text now, decades later. So if you're interested in any of that, if you, you love Neil Gaiman. If you've heard of Neil Gaiman and have always meant to check out his work, give us a listen. The show is called Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast. And even if you aren't interested in Neil Gaiman, you surely know someone who is. So we'd really appreciate some signal boost. So please help us get the word out about our our new show. Uh, Also about this show, really about all our shows, if you can. We really appreciate that help. And we're, we're so glad that you're listening to our shows. But okay, let's get to today's episode. Uh, Today, I'm going to talk to Dr. Thomas Pickles about the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity in early medieval England. Dr. Pickles earned his PhD from the University of Oxford, and really I should say his DPhil, which is technically the degree that Oxford confers, though it amounts to the same thing. And Dr. Pickles is now a senior lecturer in history at the University of Chester in the UK, and his book, Kingship, Society, and the Church in Anglo-Saxon Yorkshire, was published in 2018. And I really love this book, and I think it's a fantastic exemplar. It's an awesome model for what medievalists do, uh, what types of questions we ask, how we use a, a massively imperfect historical record to try to answer those questions, and how we supplement that record with critical theory from other disciplines, and and, and how we do all of that in dialogue with other scholars. And I love this book so much that I've actually already started using it in my classroom this semester, and I think it's probably going to become a staple uh, from here on out. And I think that's a, a great note to get to the actual conversation. Dr. Pickles, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a great show. Well, I want to start out today by situating ourselves in time and place. So let's let's talk about the, the terms in your title, and, and really let's start with Anglo-Saxons. So who were the Anglo-Saxons? When were the Anglo-Saxons? And where are we talking about? Well, I'll start with the where first, if I may. We should be thinking about the island of Britain, which is now comprised of the modern nations of Wales, Scotland, and England. Anglo-Saxons, as we use it, is a collective term which we apply to the old English-speaking inhabitants of lowland southeastern Britain between about the 5th and the 11th centuries. So the origins of this people lie with a period of migration in the 5th and 6th centuries. At that point, in the 4th and 5th centuries, there were indigenous Britons in the island of Britain speaking at a best guess, Britonic or Latin. And this indigenous people were either conquered, displaced or assimilated by people who came in from northern Germany and southern Scandinavia, speaking the ancestor of modern English. These new peoples that formed were a patchwork of peoples and kingdoms 
they were assessed in terms of the number of households in each kingdom. And this varied in assessments between small kingdoms of 300 households to very large kingdoms of 100,000 households. In this situation, political power was very fluid. There was a patchwork of kingdoms with kings who had varying levels of authority and power. Some of them established much wider overlordships over their neighbours. Eventually, the kings of one region, the Kurdiking dynasty, who ruled the West Saxons in southwest England, expanded to form a kingdom of the English and the kingdom we know as Englaland or England in the 10th century. And what is their relationship with Christianity? So in Britain, there was already a tradition of late Roman Christianity. And the indigenous Britons, those Britonic and late Latin speakers, were already Christian and they were undertaking missions to their neighbours, helpfully called the Scotty, who inhabited Ireland and northwestern Britain. But so far as we can see, the people who came in from northern Germany and southern Scandinavia, those old English speakers, were not themselves Christians. There were British, Frankish, and Irish connections. There were a variety of missionaries who seemed to have been operating. But so far as we can see, it was a Roman mission from Pope Gregory the Great in Rome via his missionary Augustine in the late 6th century, which secured the official conversion of our Anglo-Saxons, our old English-speaking kings and their peoples, sometime between 600 and the 680s. The first term in your title is actually kingship. And so what is the relationship between kings and the conversion to Christianity in the standard historiographical model of how and why the Anglo-Saxons converted to Christianity in the early Middle Ages? Well, that historiography actually begins in the early 8th century with an iconic historian, Bede, who is writing from northwest England, and he wrote an ecclesiastical history of the English people. Now, Bede depicted conversion as a series of missions to royal households, to kings and the people who surrounded them. And he depicted conversion as a rational process, a series of decisions and a series of events, if you like. Historians, until the later 20th century, had tended to follow Bede pretty closely and understood conversion to be a process whereby kings weird up the pros and cons of their religion and the new religion, Christianity, and decided to convert and their households and their peoples followed. But in the later 20th century, historians and archaeologists started to look to anthropology and sociology to think about conversion not as an event and a rational decision, but as a process. And what I was trying to do is to continue that analysis of conversion as a process. And you challenged that model, at least the broad applicability of it. But before we get to your argument, I actually want to follow this thread of this mention of Bede here. Can you tell us a little bit about the evidence that we have for Anglo-Saxon England? What types of written sources do we have? What languages are they in? And what type of material evidence do we have? So our primary textual evidence comprises Latin histories of the events of this period. And these come predominantly in two chronological groups, one in the 
earlier 8th century and another in the 10th and 11th centuries. And these comprise both chronological narrative histories and also biographies of individuals who lived amongst these old English-speaking peoples and kingdoms. We can put this alongside a corpus of cemeteries and settlements, what we would call mortuary and settlement archaeology. And this allows us to reconstruct the organisation of society, the numbers of social units, households, the way those households were composed, the age cycles and the gender distinctions that prevailed amongst the members of these peoples and kingdoms. We can also set that alongside a large corpus of stone sculpture, which, as Richard Morris famously put it, provides the ecclesiastical organisation of England with the lapidary equivalent of a barium meal. And what he means by that is it allows us to identify ecclesiastical sites on the ground. So this is a corpus of some surviving stone buildings, but largely surviving stone monuments or fragments of stone monuments that are preserved at modern parish churches. Finally, we've got the evidence of the language itself, which is fossilised for us in the corpus of place names, those Old English and Old Norse names which were applied to places in the landscape, kept up by local communities and were transmitted to us through written texts from the 5th through to the 11th and 12th centuries. It sounds like there isn't very much evidence for the early Anglo-Saxon period and that most of the evidence we do have for this period of conversion to Christianity is from a later period. That's absolutely right. And even the earlier evidence that we've got, the textual evidence tends to be retrospective. So our first Latin histories of conversion belong to the earlier 8th century, though the official conversion seems to have taken place from about 600 to to the 680s. So we're always looking back on the material. The material evidence itself is contemporary with the societies who produced it. But of course, it doesn't easily yield answers about what people thought, what they believed, how they acted. So if you like, the material evidence tends to provide us with structural analyses of these societies, the narrative evidence tells us, tends to provide us with retrospective memories about what happened and about how people behaved, which may or may not tell us the truth about how people behaved and what they believed at the time. And given this paucity of evidence, I think we as historians have a real impulse to gather up as much material as we can possibly justify as being germane to our question. But you've gone the other way here, and you've restricted your inquiry to a single region within England. And this is the region of Yorkshire in northern England. Basically, it's the the lands of the Starks in Game of Thrones. What is the the benefit of this methodological move? What's the the benefit of focusing on just one region, given how limited the evidence is? Well, I suppose I work in a tradition that's well established in terms of thinking about the history of the Anglo-Saxon peoples and kingdoms from local and regional perspectives. Because the nature of the evidence varies substantially by region, our regional study can help us think about how the nature of the surviving evidence is painting the particular picture 
that we might get from any one region by comparing a number of different regions through the lenses of the different types of evidence that we can combine in those regions. The reason I chose the region that I studied in Yorkshire was partly because it was a meaningful region in the Anglo-Saxon period. So the area stretching from the River Humber to the River Tees from the North Sea inland to the Pennines was associated with a particular people who called themselves the Deirans. It was associated with a kingdom, the kingdom ruled by members of the Deirans, and it remained a kingdom through from the 7th to the 9th centuries. It was conquered by Scandinavians who ran it as a kingdom from York. And when it was incorporated into a kingdom of the English or Engloland, it remained an administrative unit. So it was a meaningful unit of social organisation at the time. But equally, it allowed me to put together these different types of evidence. So I'm unusual in having my textual narratives from the 8th and the 10th and 11th centuries, but no documentary sources for this region. That is, I don't have any charters recording land grants. I don't have any wills recording the bequest of gifts of land and movable wealth between individuals. Um, this means that I get a distorted picture from the textual evidence. But equally, Northern England is particularly well served by a corpus of stone sculpture in a way that Southern England is not. So I'm able to place this alongside that evidence. And in Northern England, we have Old Norse place names, which don't survive in other regions where there was no migration of Old Norse speaking peoples in the 9th and 10th centuries. So that regional study allows me to think, how is this evidence presenting a picture which matches or challenges the existing narratives that we've got that have been produced from those other regions? Well, let's get back to talking about those other narratives, this standard historiographical model and how you argue that this top-down model of kingship-centered conversion is probably not correct across the board. What is the social dynamic of conversion that you see in the evidence for Yorkshire? Well, what I sought to do was to start by reconstructing the organization of society at the point of conversion, using the archaeology of those cemeteries and the settlements. Thereby, I hoped to think about the structural tensions and instabilities that were faced by people and to think about where authority and power lay amongst the different groups within this society to free me up from always reading conversion through the lens of an author, Bede, who wants to associate it with kings and with royal households. In doing that, I ended up arguing that power, authority and power lay more with local kin groups of free men rather than with the king and the royal household. That more authority and power lay with them than it did with the king. In that situation, this prompted me to think about why people might have converted if not by royal decision and royal fiat, 
what were the motivations which underpinned the decision to become Christian. So I started thinking about conversion as a social strategy. What were the tensions and instabilities faced by these free kin groups? How might conversion have been a social strategy to try to address those tensions and instabilities? So what I was reconstructing was what was the basis of social status? How much land did a kin group have to have in order to be a free kin group? How was that land passed on to new members of the kin group? Did that allow them to remain at the level of social status that they'd started out? Or did it tend towards dissipating the land and reducing their social status? Equally, I thought about how the kin group's memory might be preserved through intermarriage, um, the extension of the kin group into other local kin groups, and how that might have affected the life cycle of individuals within those kin groups, both men and women. What were men and women expected to do at particular points in their life? Would everybody be able to embody these kinds of expectations, meet those kinds of expectations? And if not, how might conversion have supplied new social strategies for kin groups to maintain their status and for these individuals to pursue successful careers, if you like. So in putting all this together, I started to think about conversion not as an event, but as a social process, not as a royal decision, but as a series of decisions and actions with unpredictable outcomes that were taken by members of these local kin groups. And in that way, I started to think about the official conversion as a reaction to these changes which were taking place. Kings drawing on constituencies of Christians to support their bids for power. Kings reacting to the changing religious environment around them and changing their behaviour as kings in order to try and meet the expectations of these new Christian groups. So if the conversion to Christianity then is not a matter of the king deciding on behalf of his entire people, all of his subjects, but is in fact the result of social pressure from constituent kin groups, how then does this affect our understanding of the organization and the structure of the church? This is something I think we also tend to think of as being king-centered, as growing out of royal foundations, grants of land, uh, royal patronage, and so on. So what then are the forces and the, the factors in your model that are shaping the new institution of the Christian church in Yorkshire? Well, I suppose there were two predominant models for how the church could be organized at this point in time. And these were bishops with what we call an Episcopal see or a cathedral and a network of churches attached to it. And bishops are responsible for pastoral care within the early church. So they ordain other clergy to the level of priest, they ordain people, those priests who can supply the mass and the other sacraments that people as Christians need to receive. The second model would be the monastic model, which involves individuals, um, both individually as hermits and collectively as monks, setting themselves aside from secular life and living a new kind of life in religious communities. It's long been recognised that 
it was intended to establish a network of bishops with cathedrals and networks of churches attached to them across our old English-speaking peoples. But it's also long been recognised that this never happened in the way that was expected. Instead, it seems as if religious communities were more popular as a form of religious organisation, as a type of church, and that they may have become pastoral centres. Traditionally, we've tended to think that religious communities were simply royal foundations because that's the way in which Bede depicts it. And a lot of our land grants reasonably show us that kings either granted the land for the foundation of a religious community or allowed people to transform their existing lands into a new kind of permanent endowment for a religious community. But in starting from the level of kin groups, I was interested in asking two questions. If authority and power seems to lie with the kin groups themselves rather than with the king, why are they willing to agree to either royal grants of land or to the transformation of other people's land for the endowment of these new communities? And if they want to found a community themselves, what are the benefits as a kin group that they think they might receive from that model of ecclesiastical organisation? And so I was thinking about the way in which these religious communities allow you to acquire a portion of land which isn't split between your heirs, but which can be passed down to particular members of the kin group, maintaining their social status. The way in which religious communities can maintain the memory of the kin group over time and promote its interests. The way in which they allow individual members of the kin group who might not want to subscribe to existing ideals about what you should do at a particular age in your life or because you were born into a particular gender category, um, it might allow those individuals to pursue new types of career. It might also allow the creation of institutions which provide places to put ageing members of the kin group who can't be cared for and looked after easily by those who are working the land. They might also supply centres which are residues of wealth and can become foci for exchange. So I suppose taking that social approach to conversion prompted me to think about the motivations of the, those kin groups and their individual members in relation to the foundation of these religious communities and the creation of this network of churches. Uh, this all seems like a fairly dramatic social change, all of these consequences of conversion to Christianity, these new, new institutions, new ways of, of thinking about the past, of organizing our, our mental landscape, not to mention legal rules about ownership of land and inheritance of property. That's all really dramatic. But it also seems like this would alter the whole dynamic of power in these societies. So how did this change uh, affect the development of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and especially the, the role and, and the duties of kings and their relationships with these kin groups? If you'd asked this question in the 1990s and 2000s, it would have seemed fairly straightforward that all the advantages I've just outlined are advantages for kings, just as there are advantages for these local kin groups of free men. But it's become clear that 
there were perhaps as many disadvantages as advantages for kings in founding these religious communities. So on the one hand, kings who were itinerant and who were also members of kin groups who wanted to memorialise their own status and power got permanent settlements which were associated with their name around which they could itinerate, what John Blair's called high-class bed and breakfasts at which they could stay. They got to perform the ideology of Old and Testament kingship and New Testament rulership at these sites. They could literally become new Solomons by founding a new temple and laying it out. They could bring their households with them in order to see them behaving like an Old Testament king in giving justice, in establishing um, centres for exchange, in gift giving, in even in taking people to war for Christian ideological reasons. So there were benefits to be had from the foundation of these communities. But it seems as if in founding them, kings had to alienate quite a lot of land to the church. And I should say at this point, there seem to be two levels of landholding. There's the landholding that our local kin groups have, and there's the dues and services that they owe to the king as king, as his subjects. And kings seem to have had to alienate the dues and services that they were receiving from local people in order to supply these new religious communities. Over time, this permanently reduces the amount of wealth at the king's disposal. In turn, that means that he can't support so many people in his household, and in particular, he can't reward as many young warriors with estates based on those dues and services in the way that he has before. So there's a reduction, if you like, in wealth and a reduction in coercive power. At the same time, it's all very well to say that kings can act like Old Testament kings and New Testament rulers, but the morality that goes with Christian kingship may often be at odds with the expectations of a warrior nobility who think of their kings as the greatest warrior amongst their people. So kings being asked to exhibit morals like humility, mercy, forgiveness, kings only taking themselves to war when Christian ideology dictates that that's acceptable, may not receive the same level of support from some of their warrior nobility that they have in the past. If this conversion process so strongly affected and even reshaped elements of political ideology, does this then help explain why later writers, such as Bede, describe this process as king-centered? Well, in order to understand Bede, we need to understand the genre of history in which he's writing. And this was a classical genre. History was a branch of rhetoric or speech making designed to persuade an audience of a moral lesson. And Bede himself tells us in the preface that he's writing for a contemporary king, Chilwolf, who is king of a people known as the Northumbrians, north of the river Humber. So Bede is supplying some sort of moral discourse for this king, using the events of the past as an argument for how kings ought to behave now and in the future. 
And Bede's models come from the Old and New Testament, but also from late antique authors like Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History, Augustine of Hippo in his City of God, um, Gregory the Great in a great tract on how Christian rulers ought to behave, known as the pastoral rule or the pastoral care. So Bede is supplying his kings with lessons in how good Christian rulers ought to behave. And in doing so, he tends not to focus on those kings who didn't behave in those ways and to supply his readers with the good lessons of those kings who did inhabit that Christian ideology of kingship. For that reason, he's likely to portray the past, the events of religious change in the 7th century as a series of royal decisions, because to persuade kings that it's imperative that they should behave as good Christians, he needs to persuade them that kings chose to do this in the past, that royal authority and power determines the religious behaviour of whole peoples and kingdoms, and that therefore the behaviour of the king is extremely important to the care of the Christians within his kingdom. I should also emphasise that Bede may be depicting a world that is more accurate for the time at which he's writing, which is between about 700 and 731, and less accurate for 50 or 100 years before he'd been writing. There is a temptation to project back the society he's describing all the way to the beginning of the conversion process in the year 600. But actually, by the time Bede is writing, we know that the process of conversion itself had allowed kings who were in about 600, apparently, simply in legal terms, very high status free men, to become central to the writing and even the extension of royal laws over their peoples, in particular in relation to Christian morality. We also know that the process of conversion had introduced not only Latin literacy, but the production of royal coinage again in these territories. This means kings can now take tolls on trade and issue coins in their own name, which depict them as good Christian rulers in that late antique and Mediterranean tradition. The foundation of monasteries has supplied them with these fantastic new stone-built settlements around which they can itinerate, and a series of literate ecclesiastics who can school them in Old and New Testament ideologies of rule, which allow kings to start claiming that they have the responsibility to direct people to construct um, buildings, that they can direct people to perform military service on a very wide scale, that they can establish law, that they can take tolls. So by the time Bede is writing, in fact, he may be writing about his own society, but as if he is writing about a society um, 30 to 100 years before his lifetime. 
Well, I have gravitated toward the first part of your book because it covers this early period of the early Middle Ages that I also work on, though in that Mediterranean world you just mentioned. But your book does go all the way up to the Norman Conquest in 1066, and you make an important argument about the end of this period as well. As you mentioned earlier, the 9th and 10th centuries are a period of Scandinavian rule in Yorkshire, a period of rule by people we colloquially tend to call the the Vikings, people who weren't Christians and who spoke a different language. So what happened to the Anglo-Saxon church in Yorkshire during this period? Well, again, it's tended to be thought that those regions which were subject to Scandinavian or Viking conquest and rule and indeed migration of Old Norse speakers— that those regions saw less continuity in ecclesiastical organisation, perhaps greater disruption to the earlier network of religious communities and any pastoral framework for providing the sacraments to the laity that was associated with them, and therefore that the conversion or reconversion of these regions was relatively late and the network of local churches that was developed in this region was relatively late. Because I approach this from the perspective of the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries, I started looking at the evidence we have for social organisation. Did authority and power again lie with our local kin groups or did it lie with our new Scandinavian or Viking kings at York? And it seemed to me that we've got a similar kind of picture as we had in the earlier period. That is, power and authority seems to lie more with the indigenous population and with the communities of Old Norse-speaking migrants who move in and settle within Yorkshire than it does with the kings at York. They face instabilities, they face challenges to their authority, which might predispose them and indeed might predispose the other Old Norse migrants to convert and to work with the existing institutions in this kingdom. So in practical terms, I'm arguing for greater continuity amongst our existing religious communities, and perhaps an earlier establishment of local churches as these incomers convert to Christianity. And the way in which I suggest we can exemplify that process is by looking at the distribution of stone sculpture at earlier sites of religious communities, looking for profusions of monuments which might point us to the surviving status or the status of newly founded religious communities, looking for sites, networks of sites where new monuments emerge in the 10th century, which might represent our new local churches developing, and looking for place names which might reveal the continuing existence of the endowments of religious communities. So names like Preston, the estate of the priests in Old English, or Prest B, the estate of the priests in Old Norse, or Kirk B, the estate of the church in Old Norse. And I argue that I think we can see a network of surviving religious communities and in the relationship between their sculpture and the new monuments which start to develop at local church sites, we can see their influence on the development of a network of local churches in this period, um, perhaps unexpected in a region that's thought to be ruled by pagan Scandinavians and ruled by men who are hostile 
to religious communities. And we do tend to think of Vikings as looting and plundering monasteries. So how did this period of Scandinavian rule affect the structure of the church and maybe especially the lives of church people? Were monasteries and bishoprics here in Yorkshire, were they, they poorer or smaller or less influential during this period of Scandinavian rule? This is a very difficult question to answer simply because we don't really have the narrative or the documentary evidence to reveal what they looked like. However, we know that even before there was raiding and then conquest by our Scandinavians, there was a process of what has been termed secularization going on. Kings were moving in and bishops were moving in on religious communities expropriating or taking away their lands, leaving them with a small residue and transforming them very often from communities of monks, which are much more expensive to run, to small communities of clergy, maybe two or three um, clergy or priests who can provide pastoral care. It may be that the conquest by Scandinavians and the migration of Old Norse speakers accelerated that process. So the sites that I'm looking at with profusion of monuments, might comprise not large religious communities of monks, as with Bede's community at Weymouth and Jarrow, but maybe small communities of clergy. What we can say is that there seems to be an engagement between the archbishops at York and some of these religious communities on the one hand, and our Scandinavian rulers and indeed our Scandinavian migrants. And the way in which we see this is on some of our monuments, the juxtaposition, the placing side by side of quite clearly Christian images, the cross, and sometimes images from the Old and New Testament with episodes from Scandinavian or Old Norse sagas, myths um, relating to the pantheon, Scandinavian pagan pantheon the gods. This suggests to us that there's a cultural interplay and perhaps even an engagement whereby our clergy are trying to educate the newcomers, the continuities and the contrasts between Christianity and their traditional ways of thinking about the cosmos, of thinking about gods. Well, that brings us all the way through the period of Anglo-Saxon England. So I think we can stop here. So Dr. Pickles, let me thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your research with with me and with our listeners. This conversation has been a, a real pleasure and a real delight. Well, thanks again for having me. I've enjoyed the previous podcast, and I hope that this lives up in some small way to the great collection that you've already established. Well, that is going to be it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me in the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. Agnes will be back next month, but in the meantime, I hope you'll check out our new show, Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast. And if you can, please give us a share on social media. We really appreciate all the help we can get getting out the word about our shows and about our network. Well, until next month, Awe Wale.